You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hi there, and welcome to episode 283 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is a continuation of episode 282 because we had so much stuff to say that we couldn't fit it into an hour. I'm your host once again. My name is Michael Farmer. Uh, I, I, you know, muscle memory almost made me say I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, but I'm not and haven't been for some time. I do non-academic work now. Joining me is someone who has not yet escaped the academic game, Nathan Gilmore, a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's it going? Don't hate the play, I hate the game. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> uh, not joining us is David Grubbs, who messaged us, a, I don't know, half hour ago and told us he cannot speak today. So uh, we're going on without him. And you will notice that contrary to our received tradition, we are not calling this episode 282.1. Uh, we decided that hassle has gone on long enough. So uh, from now on, even if there's not three of us on the episode, it's going to get a full number. And I want to note that it is uh, Michael, not me, that is defying the magisterium here. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think people are going to be mad or do you think they're going to be happy or just not care? Probably they won't care. I, I just wanted to make a magisterium joke. If you have not listened to episode 282 about Mass Cult and Mid Cult by Dwight McDonald, you might want to go back and listen to it because that's where we really summarize what that article is about. We're going to do some application today more than talking about the article directly. So if you haven't listened to that episode, uh, you know, maybe think about going back and doing that. But before we move on, what's new with the network, Nathan? We've got a new sectarian review, uh, Batman and Capital Punishment, which is a uh, panel discussion. I assume at some sort of conference, although Sounds I haven't like had a conference. A, yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to listen yet. But of course, that is sectarian review. We've got the latest uh, core curriculum episode on Plato's Republic, uh, which was a fun one. Uh, we also have a uh, City of Man country music episode, do we not, Michael? We do, and I think we talk about Johnny Cash, George Jones, and Elvis. But we record those way, way, way in advance, so I don't really remember anything I said. Right on. And I think that, that sir, is what's going on on the network. A little bit of a quiet week this week, but that's okay, right? I got three episodes, that ain't bad. If that's a quiet week for us, that means we're uh, putting out a bunch of podcasts. That's true. More, you know, and who, does anybody really need more podcasts? I, I think nobody needs more of me, Michael. <laughs> well, uh, too bad because they're going to get it as we uh, as we talk here. That's right. Uh, oh, speaking of more of me, sorry. <laughs> I, I just remembered I need to pitch uh, Christian Humanist Profiles. Uh, there's a couple new episodes that uh, listeners can dig into. One of them is with uh, Ed Greenstein, who is a uh, Hebrew Bible scholar. He did, he published a new uh, translation of Job uh, for Yale University Press. That was a really fun interview. Uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, and then we've got a an interview on 
and I'm actually looking at my shelf to remember the name of the book. This is terrible. I should know this. But the book is at home. So there's another Christian Humanist Profiles <laughs> that you listeners will be li- able to listen to. Uh, you'll have to email me and remind me who I interviewed. Yeah, yeah, and I, I certainly can't help you because that episode hasn't aired yet as we're, uh, as we're recording. I just got done teaching, listeners. My brain is slipping. So let's, uh, let's return to McDonald then. Uh, you know, this isn't on our show notes, but David said something at the end of last week's episode that I have been wanting to talk about ever since he said it because I've been chewing on it. You'll remember that at the end of last week, he he talks about mass Previously cult. on the Christian Humanist Podcast. Right. David Grubbs was talking about Snake Eyes, the, uh, the G.I. Joe character who was actually only created because it was cheaper to manufacture black plastic than other characters. And David not having access to the Ur material of G.I. Joe, he couldn't watch the cartoon, made up his own little universe for this uh, for the Snake Eyes character. And and this was his this was his demonstration that Mass Cult might not be all that bad. And we didn't really have a chance to press him on that. And uh, I just wonder what you make of that and what you make of kind of the uh, fandom uses of mass cult. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking in particular things like fan fiction about Harry Potter and, uh, and well, stuff like that about star Wars and all the other non authorized uses people put mass cult to, uh, what are we, what would McDonald make of that? And what do we make of it? Well, first of all, it's a phenomenon that I don't think would have been readily possible in 1960, simply because they're, wasn't the volume of mass cult that there is now. Uh, And second of all, it wouldn't have been possible uh, in the way that it has been for the last 25 years, give or take, uh, because the ready digital publication of creative material through the World Wide Web and then through social media, of course, hadn't come onto the scene. So I think it is a a different class of phenomena. Uh, It is something that is inherently decentralized which i think is is something that makes it opposite of mass cult in some Um, ways yeah yeah i mean because i mean fanfic you know kind of by definition does not come through the uh official channels right it comes from somewhere else uh so i mean i find that fascinating you know i mean if if mcdonald were to write about it i imagine he would put it in the category of folk art Although, like I said, since it is folding back into mass cult, I, I, I do, and mid cult, of course, uh, I wonder whether, uh, you know, he would approve of it or not. Right. Because the two ways of reading it, as far as I can tell, are as an extension of mass cult, which I think it obviously is in some ways, or as you say, a kind of folk art subversion of mass cult, which is particularly interesting to me, because as I said last week, Mass cult pretty much ate folk art. You're, you're, there's just not a whole lot of folk art left, or as you said, it, it ended up at the universities. And, and that's just because of the proliferation of mass cult. So maybe if you're inclined to think of fan culture positively, which I am generally not, um, maybe you could see that as a kind of underclass subversion of what we've been fed. But I don't know that it is. Well, then there's another phenomenon that runs parallel to this, and this also wasn't in the show notes, but... Michael got to do it, so I do too, yeah. uh, of pop culture studies as an academic field. Uh, and I was actually thinking about this after last week's episode because I, I uh, thought back to my CV and my rather limited publication record 
and somewhere approaching half of it is in pop culture studies. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is, you know, dealing with, I, I'd like to think in my case, mid-cult artifacts, sure. uh, but examining them in such a way that I would say brings forth the complexity inherent in them. Uh, mm-hmm. Although later on, listeners, if you listen to the uh, 10th episode of uh, core curriculum on the Republic, Michael and I sometimes disagree on what's inherent and what's imposed. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I really do think that, you know, the field of pop culture studies, and of course, Danny Anderson is our, our guru here in the narrative, on the, uh, on the narrative, on the network on pop culture studies. Uh, I would tend to say that it discovers and it presents a complexity that is inherent in these artifacts. And I mean, Danny, honestly, probably leans more towards mass cult artifacts than I do in his studies. But I mean, if you read what he writes and if you listen to his podcast episodes, I really do think he is discovering something inherent in that rather than imposing something on it out of his own creative, you know, English romantic, uh, you know, uh, what, what is the name of that thing? Aeolian harp. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I also have have academic publications related to pop culture. I published an article on Parks and Rec, which I think is pretty seriously mid-cult. I don't think you could argue it belongs anywhere other than that. Maybe maybe even mass cult, but I think probably mid-cult. And then I have an an, uh, an article on a, an album by a band called Ockerville River, and, and that is an album that I think I would point to and say, well, that's actually high culture, even though it's rock and roll, even though McDonald doesn't think rock and roll can can be high culture. So I, I'm, I'm with you, and, and my approach when analyzing those artifacts is to treat them the same way I would treat a novel, which is to say, you know, what does this tell us about what it means to be human? And I think that those things are obviously capable of telling us what it means to be human. And so, I don't know. Well, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, what this demonstrates is some of the, like I said, the limited scope of an approach like McDonald's. I mean, what it does is it takes a snapshot of a new medium and it focuses on its material conditions of production and of reception and of transmission. And it says that these are inherent limits that it will never transcend without taking the time to examine the artifacts that emerge later on in the development. And, yeah. you know, like I said, I mean, I, I think that's part of what makes it a, a rhetorical forefather to the Scorsese tizzy, because rather than examining any given artifact, on its own terms, it says, well, we already know these things. We know that nothing good can come from Nazareth. So therefore, we don't even need to read it. We don't even need to watch it. And yeah, I think that that medium criticism, we might call it, I I think that has real value. And I, I think losing sight of the fact that this or that artifact was produced by a committee in order to sell advertising time on television I think that's something worth keeping in mind, even if we want to praise the artifact. I, I, I do not think it's incidental to the existence of Parks and Rec that um, that the way that show got financed was by Subway or whoever buying advertisements for it. That that you, you, you almost can't even call it a product because when you're watching television, you're the product and you're being sold to the advertisers. And the, and right, the, right. the artifact is more or less bait. So I, I, I do think, People, we, because I mean, look at the number of episodes we've done on pop culture. Clearly, if I, if I say I'm against it, nobody's going to believe me. 
I, I do think it's something that we too readily forget that that these things are created for reasons beyond trying to reveal the mysteries of the world, you know? I would say reasons in addition to, because, I mean, if you think of something like Virgil's Aeneid, I mean, if you say that, you know, its moment of production is that it's to flatter Augustus Caesar, and then you end the story there, you miss out on a lot of what's going on in that poem, uh, including things that are subversive of Augustus Caesar, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think that I would want to forget that variable, but I also would want to say if you use that variable as an excuse not to examine, you stand to miss something that is genuinely interesting, whether it's inherent in the artifact itself, as in pop culture studies, or whether it is something that grows out of it, as in the case of fan culture. Fair enough. One other thing I want to I wanna float to you about Grubbs and Snake Eyes, since he's not here to defend himself. That's the best that sort. Story, that story is fascinating to me. Because it seems to me that he was not really able to encounter it as a mass cultural artifact. This is going to sound so offensive and patronizing, and I don't mean it that way. But Grubbs is almost part of a cargo cult for that. Do you know what I mean? He he has encountered... If you've seen the, the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy, this is the kind of thing he's talking about. Yeah, a cargo cult... I, I don't know if this is a real thing that actually happened, but... Uh, supposedly there were some South Pacific islands during World War II and some uh, big crates fell out of uh, out of some military planes and landed on these islands and, and people worshiped them as gods. So I, I'm just all I'm, I'm not saying David worshiped snake eyes. All I'm saying is David did not encounter snake eyes with any of the cultural context or with a great deal of the cultural context that actually surrounded it. And so he was free to kind of turn it into whatever he wanted to. And yet part and, of his account was the silence of the character on the cartoon. But he'd never seen the cartoon, right? Then how did he know he was silent? Yeah, I need to go back and ask him or uh, or, or listen to that episode again. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I would say to that, Michael, is that the account that you just gave of Grubbs and Snake Eyes is reminiscent for me of McDonald's account of uh, folk art, right? I mean, it uh-huh. is, uh, you know, I, I I don't know where in on the planet Dwight McDonald's from, but if he were from New Alabama, he would talk about folk art and follow it with Bless Their Hearts. Yeah. Hmm. All right, well, let's return to the moment everybody's been waiting for for the last week. I, oh, I wonder, let's. <laughs> let's return to that argument we had about the relative merits of Scorsese and films like those in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, you know, we're both on record as liking. I've seen all the MCU films. I've seen um, the, the bulk of the television series. I love them. I own a lot of them on DVD. So you've actually seen more than I have because I, yeah. I haven't seen the Ed Norton Hulk. I haven't watched most of the... TV series. You you are not missing anything with the Ed Norton Hulk. I've, I've heard as much. I think it is fairly hard to deny that the MCU belongs squarely in what McDonald calls the mid cult. I just, I, I, I don't think it's just mass cult. I think it has pretensions to something higher than the, that. And yet because of the circumstances of its production, um, which, you know, it's created almost literally by committee. I, I think you've got to, you've got to call it mid cult. Uh, but what do we do with Scorsese? Because he's making these movies for big studios, for large audiences. Is Taxi Driver high culture, or is it just a more sophisticated brand of mid-cult? 
I'm, I'm going to call it mid-cult uh, simply because, you know, as we talked about in the Taxi Driver episode, it is partaking in a genre that has existed before in film, in comic books, in novels, uh, and it's certainly doing interesting things with them. And then if I can shift over to the MCU, what it's doing is, is receiving characters like Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, so on and so forth, and doing interesting things with them. And so, I mean, I would say that McDonald would... Actually, I don't know. I mean, he might call it mid-cult because of the, uh, you know, the fact that it is uh, written and produced and distributed for pop audiences. Uh, but he might see that it is less collaborative than the MCU. Uh, there's less cooperation on it. There's more of a dictatorial voice to it. And he might say that, you know, because of that, because, you know, McDonald you know, kind of has that Wordsworthian, solitary, tortured artist view as, you know, the source of true art, he might say that Scorsese is that. So, I mean, I, I, I feel like if I were going to start with McDonald's categories, you could make the case of either of them. Now, I, well, Yeah, not, that's the question I'm asking you, Nathan. Well, I, and I'm saying is, uh, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and I just made the case for both of them. <laughs> um I, I, God, I, is that a Gilmore move? <laughs> well, what can I say? I uh, I teach a lot of Plato. <laughs> anyway, ne- ne- next thing you'll be stealthily accusing me of being a Republican. No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> what I would say, though, Michael, the reason that I would object uh, to Scorsese's tizzy. Uh, is first of all because of the metaphor of the amusement park. Now, I've been to amusement parks. Listeners know that I'm not a giant fan of them, but my family loves them, so there you go, right? When I encounter, for instance, Superman at Six Flags or when I encounter Woody at Disney World, uh, you know, what I encounter there is a photo op. I encounter themed rides. I encounter a non-narrative representation of something that exists in a prior narrative. It uh-huh. would not have its appeal if those narratives did not exist. Now, we can talk about the relative merits of, for instance, Toy Story 3, which I think is an absolutely masterful movie. Yeah, it's really good. And Toy Story 4, which I think is a very good movie that didn't need to exist. I didn't see that one. It's very good, and it doesn't need to exist. I um, that. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I definitely recommend it as a film on its own terms. I don't think that the Toy Story mythology needed it. Uh, but the point is when I go to, you know, Toy Story Mania at Disney World, uh, none of that narrative is there. I mean, it is carnival rides. It is carnival games with the characters involved. And the That's, 3D glasses. Don't forget that. And the 3D glasses. That's why I think that the MCU is doing something different because it certainly receives those established characters, those characters whose comic books I was reading in the 1980s and 90s, those characters that other people were reading, you know, at their point of origin in the 1960s. And it does something that is sometimes subversive, that sometimes builds on what's going on, sometimes takes a lateral move that's very interesting. In other words, it's doing with those characters what the Arthur tales of the Middle English period are doing with a received character or set of characters, really, like Guinevere, Arthur, Lancelot, uh, Galahad, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Sir Gawain. Why was I not able to conjure Gawain? Anyway, what I would say is, I mean, if you think of 
those Arthur tales as art, then there is something analogous at the very least going on with the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And for that reason, I think that they demand something intellectually of a viewer who is looking at them through that pop culture studies lens. Because just to take Thanos as an example, that character, as you heard me talk about if you listened to our Secretarian Review episode on uh, Infinity War, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s when I was reading him, uh, he was this religious fanatic. Uh, and I mean, that was the character. I mean, he was dangerous precisely because he was convinced a power beyond himself, even though he was the ultimate power, was calling him on to a very reductionist goal. Later on, when Jonathan Hickman picks up that character in the Infinity series in Avengers and New Avengers about 15 years ago, give or take, uh, he's not a religious fanatic. He is a sort of nihilist uh, who basically considers all life beneath him, and therefore he takes a kind of sadistic pleasure in ending life, but there's no sense that it is for a religious purpose. Then when you get to the MCU version, uh, he is a Malthusian, and he is trying to reduce the surplus population, to throw back to Charles Dickens, uh, for something that is certainly a monstrous, but nonetheless a, an altruistic goal. So again, if you're reading it through that pop culture studies lens, Michael, I would argue that the MCU has an inherent complexity because of its relationship not only between the films themselves, but also with a comic book mythology that it is inheriting. Now, I mean, does any given film, uh, you know, I mean, have the complexity of, uh, you know, The Godfather Part Two? I would say probably not. Right. But I would say that as a project, it's not trying to do that. It is inheriting, altering, and connecting the mythology in a way that it's not been presented before. And well, in that sense, you probably could say that if you wanted to argue on McDonald's terms, you could say that it does have, in fact, a central artistic voice behind it, which is not any of the directors, not any of the writers, but Kevin Feige, who, who kind of oversees the whole thing. I don't know that I'm prepared to make that argument, but I think that's an argument you could make. I also want to say, though, that art doesn't have to come through the single torture genius. No. It can be something more collaborative. Well, and, and no film does, right? There's, there's, there's really no film that is the product of a single person. Not even movies, not even Woody Allen's movies that are written, directed by and starring him. I mean, even then they're collaborative. So I, I think, I think that the, the, the romantic torture genius thing doesn't hold true for film as much. But I do think there's a distinction to be made from art that comes from people to people and art that comes from a committee not a collaboration, but a committee to a, a mass society. And I would argue that the best way to make that judgment is artifact by artifact, not an a priori dismissal of an entire class of artifacts. Yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I, um, I, I guess what I would say is that there's a lot of mass cult that we can still get interesting things out of and, and, and mid cult as well. And and that doesn't mean they're not mass cult and they're not mid cult. It doesn't mean they're not produced by committee. It doesn't mean they're they're not sub artistic in some way that's not quite as harsh and value laden as that sounds. Well, in that case, then, I mean, what value does that distinction retain then if the interest can still be there, if the complexity can still be there? 
uh, what do we gain by patrolling that boundary called real art with a capital R and a capital A and a capital ERT? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. Let, let me return to, instead of answering it, let me, um, let me, <laughs> let me change the subject entirely. Uh, because you, you, you say that your, your example of Scorsese's theme parkification of the movies has to do with pre-existing narratives and, and just kind of like having context-free encounters with Woody and Superman, right? Yeah, yeah. That's not how I understand him to be talking about theme parks. And this this does tie back in with McDonald because one of the things we didn't talk about last week that separates uh, high culture from mass and mid-cult is that high culture doesn't flatter the audience. It doesn't mean it's difficult. It doesn't necessarily mean it's nihilistic, but it means it doesn't tell the audience what they want to hear, which is exactly what a theme park does, right? When you go to a oh, theme sure, park- sure. It, the the entire thing is set up to make you feel in a particular way, right? And it's a way that's pleasant for you to feel. Um, yeah, so far, so good. Right. So I th- I think certainly Socrates. I, <laughs> I I think the vast majority of MCU stuff does not challenge its audience. I think there are a couple of exceptions. Uh, I think Captain America: Civil War, which I've said before, is is probably the best of the movies as far as I can tell. I think it really does challenge the audience. I think it takes what you expect from a superhero movie, which is redemptive violence, and it calls the whole thing into question. And I think that's interesting. And and okay. that I mean, in McDonald's definition, pushes it away from mid cult and toward high culture. And I I think maybe you could say something similar with Infinity War, just because of. Um, just because of the sympathy with which it treats its villain. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah. I think for the most part, those movies don't do that. Um, I, I think for the most part, they, they give you what you want rather than interrogating you. What do you then, think about that distinction? Then let me pose a, a follow-up then. Can any comedy then be high culture by that definition? Because comedy only works if you are basically playing to what the audience wants to hear. To some extent, right? You you have to you have to please the audience, and in fact, everything to be successful has to please the audience on some level. I guess maybe what I'd say is that it has to please the audience on a level they may not expect to be pleased. But Same now more. that you've asked that question, I'm I'm having trouble coming up with a good example of a comedy that does that. Well, and I wonder if this is a something analogous to Aristotle's preference for tragedy over comedy. Uh, because, I mean, he can't seem to say, I mean, other than in the fictional book two of the poetics that Umberto Eco invents, let's set that aside. But in the actual poetics as we have it, he has all sorts of things to say about tragedy because of its its power to you know, inspire fear and pity, right? He says that epic is all right because it does that, but not as intensely. But then when he gets to comedy, he has almost nothing to say because he has, I think limited the scope of what artistic production does for an audience so that he has prima facie ruled out comedy as you know something that we can we can meaningfully call art right and and maybe what that means is that high culture comedy is much harder to produce than high culture tragedy well, say more. Give me an example. I'm 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 having trouble coming up with one, and I don't okay. want I I don't want listeners to go away thinking that what I'm praising here is comedy that is that offends its audience because we're not really talking about offense, right? We're talking about challenge. Um, we're, we're we're talking about something that 
what what's the line from that Rilke poem? You must change your life. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I I I think again I don't have an example ready made because I didn't know you were going to ask about comedy. But I I I there must be comedy that does that. Must there be though, or is it that McDonald's categories aren't broad enough? Do you not think there's comedy that that asks people to change their life without flattering them? Uh, I mean, I can't think of examples. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, for comedy to work, right? I mean, it has to be something that creates the possibility of something going very badly, Uh but then returns it to some kind of stasis. And so, I mean, kind of by definition, the plot line of a comedy has to return you back to the community that is being sustained. Does it? All right, give me a, give me a counterexample. All I can think of now is a play by Gabriel Marcel that nobody listening to this will have read. So I'm going to try to explain it. <laughs> okay. Because I, I just translated it. So, I mean, it's it's on my mind. It's a play called Columbier, and it takes place in 1937, right before the World War II. And they're, they're, they're coming together to form a, um, to a utopian community in Switzerland to ride out the war. And they all hate each other, right? I mean... As, as you would expect from a comedy about a utopian institution. And at the end of the play, what happens is um, a revolutionary plants a bomb and explodes the whole thing. So ac- actually the worst fears that you have about the play have come true, right? So it's not a restoration I'm, unless, you think, unless you think that the nihilism of World War II is the restoration. Maybe okay. you just would so say that's say not a the, comedy. At the end of this play, a bomb goes off and kills everybody? doesn't kill anybody. It just blows up the building. Everybody, everybody abandons it. So again, I mean, what I would, what I would ask is, I mean, is this a comedy in the same way that something by Aristophanes is a comedy or, I mean, is it a, an experimentation with genre by someone who is aware of the conventions of comedy, but is monkeying with the genre so that it becomes something else? Well, I think part of the problem is we're using comedy to mean two things simultaneously. One being things that make you laugh, and the other is things with a happy ending. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, listeners, I apologize. I'm largely thinking of the latter sort. Okay, well, the divine comedy then is is something that I don't think flatters you. I think I think the divine comedy obviously calls you into a higher life. All right, now do Aristophanes. Well, I mean, Aristophanes is so critical of his society. I mean, he almost literally takes aim at at actual individuals watching the show. I mean, in, in, in some ways, Aristophanes is Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes, which I, you know, I don't like Ricky Gervais. I don't think he's that funny, but I, I do think I do think he refused to flatter his audience at the Golden Globes. He refused to flatter the people in the room, but at the same time, he was flattering all of those Twitter people who are suddenly following him now. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, at that point, to make any kind of joke at all, you're going somebody's going to be happy with you. You can't you can't piss everybody off. And and well, and that's why I think, again, that McDonald is narrowing things too much before he actually examines any artifacts. Well, I mean, part part of the problem is that I cut out all the parts of this essay where he actually examines artifacts. So you didn't you didn't get the opportunity to read point the taken, way he actually taken. goes about talking about things. And right, that's my right. fault, not yours. Oh, no, 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 no. And I know I, I grant that point. I grant that point. Like I, and honestly, I had Scorsese in mind more than I had McDonald in mind with that point. Sure. So I should have said Scorsese narrows things down prematurely. Do you disagree that the MCU tends to flatter the prejudices of its audience? I think that the more comic films do, 
Okay. Uh, but I think that, for instance, if you look at Black Panther, it's something that really doesn't settle the question, you know, did uh, Killmonger have a point? Yeah, I, I agree with that. That's that's another one where I think it's striving for something beyond mid-cult. So, you know, I mean, certainly, I mean, you know, some of the movies that I think of as the setup movies, uh, you know, which is which is something that has happened in cinema before, but not on this scale, right? I, I think that they are less complicated, but I think that if you consider it as a network of parts that compose a whole, that it does do something more complex than, for instance, the Ant-Man films do, uh-huh. which are, you know, decidedly the most, I mean, maybe not the most, cult. but they're certainly the, well, I was going to say the more comic artifacts within that network. Yeah, I mean, I, I would not say, and I like those movies very much, um, but I, I would not say that they really even have anything to say, that they're, those movies really are kind of a theme park ride. And I mean, that's what's fun about them. And see, I, and again, I guess here's where I, I would say, I mean, then at some point you have to say that, you know, a Shakespeare comedy is not art because, you know, I mean, there's really not much there that challenges the assumptions of the audience. I mean, it is there to make jokes. It's there to have a marriage at the end. It's there to introduce some fun characters. But I mean, yeah. as far as this grand critique, so I mean, you know, again... I, I, I think I would be comfortable saying that with, with, with many of those comedies, yeah. That Shakespeare is not art? That, that the Shakespeare comedies are, are mass, well, they're not mass cult because mass cult wouldn't have existed then, right? There's material conditions. But then mid cult only cult. exists after mass cult. Right. So, so the, these categories are 20th century categories. Oh, I agree. I agree. And that's part of what Grubbs was bringing up last episode. Right. That once you get really much past Wordsworth traveling backwards, the categories fall apart. Yeah, so I mean, I am I'm comfortable saying that the Shakespeare comedies are not high art. I I, I you couldn't possibly call them mass cult though, or mid cult because you know, oh I agree I agree yeah, but that, like I a, said that's a, I mean a category that wouldn't have made any sense if your only criterion is the social challenge, then they fall off your radar and I don't think they should fall off your radar. Yeah, I mean it depends on what fall off your radar means, right? Am I saying don't go see them, uh, or that they have no value? No. But I, but I am saying, you know, mostly they're good for a laugh. And now I can hear my, uh, my, my wife is going to yell at me after she listens. Oh, you think to this that's episode. unintentional? <laughs> <laughs> but well, let me let me give you an example. And and it's so hard to know how these those plays would have been performed originally. But we went to see a production of uh, Taming of the Shrew. Okay. And. and for the first two acts, you know, is a laugh a minute, a lot of dirty jokes. And then all of a sudden it became clear that Petruchio is an abuser and, and Katerina is his victim. Yeah, and yeah. I, and that's I mean, a lot of criticism goes that way. Right. And and so I think if if the play works that way, and, and maybe it did in the sixteenth, late sixteenth, early seventeenth century, and maybe it didn't, I don't know. But if it did, I think that's definitely challenging um the prejudices of of its audience. Now again, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe, um, maybe Shakespeare had in mind that the uh, the the audience would just think Petruchio was hilarious and that Katerina had it coming. I think that's quite possible. And that's how I tend to read it. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that you can definitely do productions that do that work. So again, I, I I guess you know what we're kind of arriving at is that I can grant 
McDonald's slash Scorsese slash Farmer's Division between high art and whatever Shakespeare's comedies are. I just don't know how useful that is or what work it is doing. I'll put it that way. It's not that it's not useful. I'm not sure what work it is doing. The work I think it's doing is it gives you a category in which to understand these things. The same way the division between tragedy and comedy is a, is a meaningful category that helps you understanding the, understand the plays, right? Oh, I agree. Most people, though, when they say tragedies and comedies are naming two classes of good things, McDonald is not doing that when he talks about mass cult and mid cult. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, and I mean, I, I think I've already, I already said last week that um, as much as I might like to be McDonald, I'm not going to be, that I'm too attached to these things. And, well, and, and moreover, when Scorsese makes the distinction between cinema and theme park, that's also not two names for two good things. No, that's true. And I, I do think that's a meaningful distinction. I, th- I think the difference between Taxi Driver and Ant-Man is a, is a really meaningful distinction and that society would be better off if we all watched more movies like Taxi Driver, not Taxi Driver itself, but more movies like that, and fewer movies like Ant-Man. Now, where that gets complicated is, as we've been discussing, movies like Civil War or Black Panther, movies that, that really do, they inhabit the same cultural space as Ant-Man, but in their form might look more like Taxi Driver. I, I agree that that... That is more complicated than Scorsese makes it in that editorial. And I would argue that part of what makes movies like Civil War and Black Panther as powerful as they are is that they coexist with the comic films. In other words, if you didn't have Ant-Man, Black Panther wouldn't punch as hard as it does. Oh, I don't know that that's true. I hadn't seen Ant-Man when I saw Civil War, and Ant-Man's even in that movie. You know, and I, I don't remember it having any particularly negative impact, although I guess I, I was aware that Ant-Man existed. I don't know. I think we've come to our, our uh, at, at least to some terms of disagreement. Listeners yeah. can write in. Well, uh, here's a question I was going to ask Grubbs, but I'm going to ask you instead. And, and, you know, frankly, you're probably the better person to ask. Um, just because of, of what I know about your media consumption habits. Yes, indeed. Towards the end of the essay, and I used to love teaching this essay because the students always picked up on this, but towards the end of the essay, he proposes a number of solutions to mid-cult. And, and one of them is subscription television, which must have been you know a mere idea in 1960, but now, of course, is uh, really the, the main way people encounter television. Oh, yeah, it's bigger than cable, I'd say. Have HBO and Netflix saved us from the tyranny of mid-cult? Well, let me try to return to an earlier point and say that if you took a snapshot of Cinemax, and I had to practice to say that (laughs) instead of Skinemax, in 1987. Yeah, but uh, please, if you're taking a snapshot of Cinemax in 1987, make sure that Safe Search is on. Yes, indeed. Then the answer would absolutely be, I mean, this is nothing but a new vehicle for pornography. Absolutely. Uh, Now, what's interesting is that... uh, the and I, I can't even remember what what term people use the the platinum age of television is that the phrase that gets thrown around peak television you sometimes hear yeah yeah prestige you know, television yeah prestige television I like that you know starting you know by both my most people's measures in 1999 with season one of Sopranos yep uh, and going through you know 
The Wire and Breaking Bad and uh, Mad Men. Mad Men, yes, thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to note that it kind of defies the means of production determinism because some of these shows, like Longmire, like Mad Men, uh, they come across basic cable, not through subscription. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is still, you know, television with commercials. It's it's there to sell uh, advertising, right? Well, and and we've talked about the bizarre Mad Men advertisements where it's a show about an ad agency and characters from the show do actual advertisements between segments of the show. Oh, that's fascinating. See, I watched the whole series on Netflix, so I never got that side. Oh, I felt like I've heard you talking about that, but I guess I guess that it was somebody else. No, it must have been someone else. And okay. then, I mean, you know, one of my favorite uh, television shows that actually does have a comic cast to it, Friday Night Lights, uh, where, you know, inexplicably, uh, within the bounds of the drama itself, uh, you know, important scenes keep happening, at least in the first couple seasons, at Applebee's. Now, yeah. if you're sitting outside of the series, you know perfectly well why all of these, you know, important reunions happen at Applebee's because this is, you know, an experimental model of how to get product placement and, you know, uh, revenue from corporations into the show, right? Um, so, I mean, I think that, I, I, of course, I think it demonstrates my point, Michael. I'm an egomaniac, but I think that this <laughs> demonstrates my point. <laughs> that, you know, if you start with, you know, a deterministic thesis that, you know, artifacts produced in certain ways for certain purposes uh, can never do anything that is challenging artistically, you're going to miss out on Mad Men. You're going to miss out on Friday Night Lights. You're going to miss out on these things. Now, to turn to HBO and Netflix, I do want to say that, first of all, Netflix uh, does a lot of its business by representing, as we just discussed, uh, you know, Mad Men shows from cable TV. Less and less, though. That's happening less and less. True, true. But, I mean, that's how it got its gigantic market share, I would argue. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I really do think that, you know, there really have been some phenomenal uh, series on Netflix. The Crown right now is the one that I watch religiously. Um, and I think that, you know, Netflix has some real stinkers uh, you know, they have like, a wide net to be sure. Haha, ha, I get that. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that McDonald would probably find this interesting, but frankly, you know, with the limitations of McDonald's theoretical scope, I would want some other theorists to take a look at it. I think, mm. what do you say? I, I am interested in prestige television because I think of, I think it conceives of itself as being high culture. And sometimes it probably is. But a lot of times it mistakes bleakness and nihilism for having something to say. And so, naked butts. Right, right. I mean, you know, almost everything on Showtime is just there to find a way to show you breasts. Um and and yet these are shows that get lumped in with prestige television. I was going to write an article about how prestige television is just another form of mass cult, mig cult, but um, I couldn't bring myself to watch all these borderline pornographic shows that I would have had to write about. So I'll leave that article for someone else who has uh, who has uh, who has a, a stronger stomach than I do. So I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because I, I think in some ways it did deliver what McDonald wants it to. I, I, I think there's a lot of stuff on subscription television and kind of basic cable, even even regular television that works on on 
the model of subscription TV shows. I think there's a lot of stuff there that shoots at something higher than mid-cult. But I, I also think it's surrounded by a bunch of garbage that looks like the same thing and is something radically different. Well, and frankly, they have to draw subscribers. So, I mean, it's right. not a quotary medium by any means. You have to have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of subscribers in order to make this work. So, I mean, it can't be the elite quotary that McDonald seems to be imagining here where you'll just have the right sorts of people watching it. I mean, you have to appeal to a broad audience in order to make something like this happen. I, I think he must have been picturing essentially filmed theater for his subscription television. You know, he, he certainly wasn't picturing something like Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've never watched or read Game of Thrones, but I've certainly seen enough of the fans defend some of its excesses to know basically what we're talking about. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated with, with that little addition at the end of, of the essay. Cause oh, in it some was ways, definitely I think, a surprising turn. I did not see that coming. I, I had no idea people were even talking about subscription television in 1960. Right, right. And I mean, t- basic cable is on one level subscription television, but I mean, there's but hardly it still has anything. commercials. Right, right. But it's, it's funded, at least in part, not by the commercials, but by people electing to pay for it. Uh, but I mean, if you yeah. look at basic cable, there's more garbage on that than there is on regular television. Well, yeah, and then there's the complication that Comcast owns a third of broadcast TV. Right. Right, yeah. And I, so I mean, just all kinds of weirdness. Well, I mean, this is the spread of mass call, right? When you, If something's not owned by Disney, it's not going to make it into theaters increasingly. Yeah, and yet, you know, the sitcom about philosophy is on NBC. Yeah, a mid cult if there ever was mid cult. Oh yeah, way. yeah. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight you on that one. <laughs> uh, that is a that is a show with the trappings of something to say without really much to say. I'm increasingly thinking by the time this episode airs, the final episode will have aired. That sounds right. weird. And and as we're recording, I'm a couple episodes behind, so don't spoil too much. I, I won't. But man, the penultimate episode made me angry. It made me I'll angry have to have and. A look. and and it was also it was also like oh of course this is this is what happens we'll talk about it after you've seen it Nathan okay I'm sure we will I'm sure we will <laughs> well another section in the essay that hit close to home was the one where he talks about the differences between England and America and he, he speaks of America as a as a place of uh, sports and mass cult and England is a place with a bunch of amateur scholars and what he calls little magazines so I want to end on a reflexive note. What would McDonald think of our little project here? Are, are we amateur scholars? You're a professional scholar, but I'm an amateur now. Are we, are we amateur scholars bringing high culture to the few and the willing, or are we just semi-successful purveyors of mid-cult? Or are we something else altogether? I'd say I'm an amateur scholar who's still getting a paycheck and hoping they don't find me out. But, I, <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting, you know, the division, like you said, that he makes between uh, you know, sports-obsessed America and, you know, more intellectual Europe. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I don't maintain regular conversations with a whole lot of Europeans, but the European students we get here at Emmanuel College, uh, almost all of them come here to play sports. Now, that is a self-selecting group. I, I agree, I agree. So, I mean, uh, they exist. So, you know, uh, again, you know, 
Once again, I think that if you define your categories too tightly at the outset, you lose out on some of the benefits of empirical investigation. That said, you asked me about uh, our little podcast. Uh, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think that when people write about our podcast, which they do in the uh, iTunes reviews, by the way, listeners, go write an iTunes review, uh, and when they mention us, you know, on other podcasts, I mean, uh, the big guys, uh, like Trip Fuller over at Homebrew Christianity, like Jason Michelli over at Crackers and Grape Juice, they tend to talk about us as a more refined podcast, as something that is, you know, attempting serious intellectual inquiry. Uh, and yet, you know, I mean, when people write directly about us in those reviews, a lot of times what they talk about is, you know, sort of the, the, the goofy rapport that we have, you know, the fact that we're bringing intellectual questions uh, into contact with, you know, stupid, you know, multilingual puns in David's case, fart <laughs> jokes in my case, uh, you know. Uh, so I, I, I think that McDonald, you know, because he wouldn't know what to do with us, would probably relegate us to mid-cult, but that probably re uh, reflects my... Uh, somewhat dim view of McDonald more than it does anything else. So what do you think? You've spent more time with this, uh, with this essay than I have. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like to think that at our best, we're doing something like a little magazine over the air. And it, I mean, it's interesting that one of the most famous little magazines in America was partisan review, which is of course what Danny's sectarian review is referencing. So I think, he at least sees his job as doing something similar to what McDonald is asking for. I named that show, by the way. Did you? Yeah, yeah, because he, he came to my office, and I'll, I'll say that when Danny used to work here at Emanuel College, if he had an hour between classes, he would spend 45 minutes of it leaning on the doorway to my office and keeping me from doing any work. But uh, he said, yeah, I want it to kind of be like, you know, partisan review, but, you know, kind of with the Christian humanist uh, approach. And really, as a dumb joke, I said, so kind of like a sectarian review. And all of a sudden, he runs back to his office, and here we are, however many years later. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there are, quote-unquote, intellectual podcasts that are closer to mid-cult than we are. I don't know that we're high culture. But I, I, I think we occasionally shoot for that, at least. I yeah, hope. I mean, and, and here's my alternative to McDonald, Michael, and you can tell me what you think of this. I think that our. I think it sucks. <laughs> I knew you would. Uh, I think that you know what I look for in you know art is does it demand something of the person watching, listening, reading, so on and so forth. And I think in that respect, our podcast certainly does that because we don't have a single point of view on very many questions. Occasionally, the three of us will come to the same place. But almost always, and this is why people, I think, keep listening to us, uh, you're going to find one of the three of us to be mad at. That's true. And, you know... Usually you. Usually me. Yes, I'll, I'll grant that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I really do think that uh, our listeners, and I'm going to flatter our listeners here, so I guess I'm <laughs> shading us into mid-cult, uh, are, are the sorts of people who can keep coming back week after week and listen to that tension emerge and not get resolved and still come back the next week. But Nathan, if what real art does is demand something of the audience, how is that not just saying the same thing about 
uh, high culture doesn't flatter its audience and mid cult does. Because sometimes we do comedy. And again, what I, what I'm trying to get at here is that, you know, when I teach and when I write about and when I read for myself, uh, you know, Aristophanes or Ben Johnson or Shakespeare, uh, I, I don't experience it as something that is mindless entertainment. And of course, McDonald won't even dig- dignify it with entertainment. He didn't even uh, think it's entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that there, there is something going on intellectually. And if nothing else, I mean, it is examining the structure of what makes the jokes work. Uh, it's, you know, enjoying the movement of the characters. It's doing those sorts of things, right? So it demands something, but it doesn't always demand the same kind of thing. And I think that that's what McDonald's Mass Cult and Mid Cult and Scorsese's Tizzy have in common is that they expect all art to demand the same kind of thing. I think that they really are closing off too much of what human beings do before they actually examine it. And I think, on the other hand, that that pop culture criticism too often confuses us looking at an artifact anthropologically with the artifact having something to say. I absolutely agree with that. I think that far too much... For instance, this is why I always dreaded teaching Shakespeare's comedies is because all of my coursework in grad school treated them as sociological artifacts over which we stood as its arbiters, and it never really got into what is the text doing. What I ended up having to do was read about 10 or 12 books on stand-up comedy and joke writing before I could teach myself to teach those plays as actually doing something on their own terms rather than being artifacts for us to put on a museum display and examine. But that, that too is a kind of anthropological examination. It's just an examination through the lens of stand-up comedy as opposed to judging it for not being woke enough or whatever. I'd say it's a different kind of thing, though. I really would. Well... Uh, maybe our listeners will uh, take sides with one of one of us or the other, or maybe they'll they'll think that uh, David Grubbs would have had this all uh, sorted out if he had only deigned to show up for this episode. Listeners, but, he has a bad cold. But he Nathan, have much thank, of a voice. <laughs> but but Nathan, thank you for uh, for sweating this out with me. Oh, it's perfectly cool, man. I've I've actually got some uh, some of my students uh, who have been asking me about the the Scorsese editorial. And I said, oh, you need to listen to the show because we are, uh, we're duking it out. So uh, my students in uh, advanced composition class, shout out. <laughs> this, and I shout am out flattering to my wife. the heck out of the audience right now, Michael. <laughs> shout out to my wife who is no doubt going to put my head in a bag and hit me with a bat when she gets, uh, when gets home <laughs> after hearing this episode. Nice. Uh, David is hosting next week. What is he asking us about? Oh, sorry, I forgot to hit the mute button. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say it's right there on the sheet, yeah, I, Nathan. No, 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 I, I actually said it, and then I didn't say it. But uh, next week, David is going to be taking us through Meditations and Prayers of St. Anselm. Most of us know Anselm for his philosophical theology, his ontological argument, his take on the atonement that's rooted in medieval legal theory. Uh, he was also someone who wrote on prayer, and that's what we are going to do, Michael. Sounds good. I, I don't know anything about Anselm beyond the ontological argument and the um, the atonement theory. So uh, I look forward to learning along with the rest of you. 
In the meantime, you can go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Listen to our other 282 plus episodes, since we have all those point ones in there. Uh, listen to the other shows on our network. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, thanks for listening. And until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore in the absent. David Grubb saying, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>